Lord, you are our Lord, our master, creator, and your majestic name fills the whole earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens, and you have taught children and even infants to tell of your strength, silencing enemies and all who oppose you. God, when we look at the night sky, when we see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, we're overcome. What are mere mortals that you should even think about us? Human beings that you should care for us. And yet not only do you care for us, you have made us only a little lower than yourself. You crown us with glory and honor, and you have given us charge, sacred responsibility over everything you have made. You have put all things under our authority, the flocks and the herds, the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. And to the psalmist's declaration, we together tonight ask, we add these requests that you, God, would make us good, faithful, and worthy stewards. Give us eyes to see the beauty that is around us. Capture and captivate us by your good creation and lead us to be the leaders of your creation that you ask us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I greet you in the strong and powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here. And one of the reasons I'm at the 8th Street Church is because uh, what I, one of the things I love about this place is they value, you all value curiosity. You allow us to begin to talk about issues and to think about things that perhaps we've never been able to do in faith communities before. And so that is one of the things that we have wanted to do. We've wanted to do it while we, uh, while we reach deep into the ancient text and the ancient wisdom of our forefathers and our foremothers. But we also do it as we have conversations and we uh, take a look at the world around us. So I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the letter to the Philippians. It's in the New Testament, and I have some friends who have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, somebody can just hand you one. They'd love to give you one to own if you don't own one. Uh, we have Bibles in Spanish for people whose first language is Spanish, or for those of you who are practicing your Spanish, which I do from time to time, you are welcome to have one of those Bibles as well. But I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. And uh, we're going to be reading uh, just five verses, uh, starting with verse 4 uh, through verse 9. And I want to I ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. We are in this series called God is Green, and where we're talking about echo-theology. And, uh, and so I want you to, we, we've talked about things from a theology of land to a theology of water. Last week was a theology of mobility. Today, I want to talk about the ancient Christian practice of simplicity as we think about our green God. 
So listen to the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 4. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this week, I took our weekly practice seriously. Each week, we give you a weekly practice in your worship folder. Pastor Mikhail will talk about a weekly practice at the end of our service. But I took the weekly practice very seriously. The practice last week was to uh, participate in some form of alternative transportation. It was my dream weekly practice, all right? I rode my bicycle to work several days this week, and my experiences were wonderful. The weather was gorgeous. There were things that I saw and felt and heard. I, I had a deeper connection with my community. I talked to people about my bicycle. I told the story of my bicycle. It has a story and, and I've just decided that I'm going to be looking for a name for my bicycle. Boats get named, people name their cars, why not a bike? So I'm open, you can send me emails or text me. Right now, clergy bike is the one that is leading the, leading the, the list. This week I saw a very old woman planting flowers in her yard on North, Northwest 19th and Penn. She has the most colorful yard. Her work as she knelt down there next to her mailbox is a gift to her neighbors, at least during some seasons of the year. I noticed, I literally noticed this, she wasn't wearing iPods while, or her ear pods while she was doing her, her work. And I could notice this because I was present and I could see that she was present. I heard the bell, as I rode, I heard the bells ring at the St. Francis of Assisi Catholic Church there in the Gatewood neighborhood. I crossed through there. I was invited into joy by that faith community. On Tuesday morning, a young hipster pulled up next to me on a fixie. That's a bike with no gears in case you didn't know what a fixie was. This makes her a true bike commuter. She's a purist. And her tattoos and her messenger bag and her no helmet confirmed it if there were any doubts. This is a picture. I think I got a picture. Maybe, Evan. We don't have any pictures tonight. The, the, I had a picture of a, a fixie bike that you could see. She, there she was. And as we waited at the stoplight, I said to her, good morning. And she replied, it is so good to be out today, isn't it? Well, there I sat. I mean, I felt so awesome in my white t-shirt and my 24-gear bike next to her. <laughs> Even though I'm not a purist, her greeting welcomed me into her community of cool. I, I, I felt like we were bonded. 
we were saving money together. I don't know if you know me. Saving money is one of my favorite things in the world to do. It will be my next favorite weekly practice. I felt like we were saving the world together. And all at the same time, we were being saved by the world. The air in our lungs, our circulatory systems were circulating, our nerves were feeling it all, our muscles just, you know, firing to get us to our destination. One day I w- waved to a group of preschoolers as they were buckled in their, into their seats in their little preschool bus. I was waiting at this intersection, and I'm not kidding you, all of them, every single one had their necks turned, stretched to see me, while the driver was completely oblivious. So when I waved, all of them reacted with this, hey, look, he sees us, you know, look as if they had encountered a celebrity. And as the bus started to turn, they waved and they waved and they waved and they kept on waving until they couldn't see me anymore. While I was riding on my bicycle, I considered my day. I considered my kids. I practiced my Spanish and I I got an opportunity to pray for you. And I felt joy. I think this is the kind of joy that Paul is talking about. I think that this is the the kind of joy that the early Christian writers are speaking of. I think that this is the kind of joy that, that the wave of minimalists are looking for. I think this is the kind of joy that has made uh, Marie Kondo a hit. And why everybody's watching her on Netflix. It's a joy that comes in simplicity. Paul says, be joyful in everything. This comes from a man who went from having a lot. I mean, he had everything. The top of the top, the best in his class, trained in the best schools, was the wealthiest. He went from there to having nothing. And he understood what it meant to live a simple life. Living a simple life is a practice that has Virtuous implications for thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years. Wisdom has said the simple life is the better life. It's the richer life. It's the more meaningful life. You ask a grandparent who is close to the end of her life or his life, and they will talk to you about the simple things. Now we live in this day and this time that comes with an entirely different and alternative narrative that pursues every single one of us with abandon. And it goes something like this, never be satisfied. You'll never have enough. Time is money. Money gets you security. Security is power. Power, your power, is represented in your stuff. And we're invited, which is probably a bad way to say it. We are, we're not invited. We are manipulated coerced, tricked, fooled to consume. Consume. Consume, consume, consume. It's the message of advertisers, but we got to not just put it on them. It also comes in our friends and our employers from time to time. It even comes in the church world. We live like rats in a wheel. We're the wealthiest we've ever been and we're tired and we're stressed and we're unhealthy and we're dying of weird diseases and we're broke at the very same time. Uh, you know, we were, we were fixed 
made, designed to consume. Early in the evolutionary process, we were uh, we, we consumed in order to survive. There is this biological instinct that is set in place, and it's it's set there in place so that so that we'll be protected. It protects us. And the switch, in our earliest days, the switch would go off when we needed to stay warm or we needed to fill our bellies or, or we needed to reproduce. And so that, that thing is still in us. But now when we go into a store, we don't have these, these, uh, life, these uh, life-risky needs. But those chemicals are still in us. Those survival chemicals are in our brains. They're, they're primal to us. And, and what they do is they take all these narratives and they take all these messages that we've received. And in super speed, they combine them and then they flip the switch of our urgent biological impulse. Now, I'm no psychologist, but it seems to me that the, the, the ego, the superego, they don't like all go to work all at the same time. Our primal instincts, our moral compass, our reality is get after one another. And then there in the store, we feel some kind of conflict because we are now evolved persons. But in most situations, Americans find a way there in the store to rationalize, to see that there's at least a little something that they need. There is a purchase. Chemicals of adrenaline then, once we make that purchase, happen and then feelings of release and relief come over us. But shockingly, then we find that the iPhone that we purchased and we wanted so bad and we needed because it was going to help us at work has now been replaced by a, you know, with a new chemical kick in when we see that the new generation has just been made available. And so now the old one doesn't matter. And the process begins again. It's like the song that I heard as a child. I know an old lady who swallowed the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. The old lady doesn't quit the disgusting habit of eating flies, but then instead she embraces new habits or grosser. The, the habit becomes grosser, so she swallows the spider to swallow the fly. And then she's in real trouble because then she has to swallow something to swallow the spider and it goes on and on and on. And before you know it, you're singing, she swallowed the cat to catch the bird. She swallowed the bird to catch the spider who wiggled and jiggled and and, and tickled inside her and she sw- and then she swallowed the spider to catch the fly and I don't know why she swallowed that fly perhaps she'll die and there's our warning right there it, we're in this repetitive kind of thing and there are these other times and we, and we know those times and we can see it but then there are these other times when we have so much in front of us that we never even consider our purchases. Did you know that we buy orange slices now that come in plastic containers? Trevor Noah on The Daily Show pointed this out, okay? And do we have any pictures, Evan? Trevor Noah pointed out that an orange already comes in a container, everyone. It was made that way. It's, it's so ridiculous. Our constant need to collect or buy things gives us a false sense of power. It's like we can say, when we get stuff that I have agency, I, I have power, 
and you can't say anything to me because I can make my own decisions. But we don't even realize that we're submitting to actually a larger, more sinister narrative that has really, really long-lasting implications. And, And I would argue that this is very stressful. And this very stressful kind of way that we do life together comes at a cost, and it's it's a high cost. Uh, the cost, first of all, is high, and it's personal. You know, we are not really demonstrating power at all, or we're not demonstrating agency at all. We're just demonstrating when we mindlessly purchase, we are just demonstrating that we are su- susceptible to the power of seduction. And, and the result is our, our, our participation in, an, in a system of exploitation and self-indulgence and entitlement. Do you know what we call this? Slavery. And the biblical story has warned us the cost of slavery is astronomical. Both Jesus and Paul grew up with this ancient history, ancient heritage story. It's the story of the Exodus when their people were enslaved in Egypt under a dictator named Pharaoh. Now, now Pharaoh was the self-proclaimed God, the God of Egypt, and he had it all. And, and you may know the story, but Pharaoh built an economy on more and more and more and more and more. All of, all powerful, he was all powerful and all of his de- demands came raining down from on high. He led massive building campaigns. He established a worldwide trade. And every citizen in his country was there to strengthen, and, uh, strengthen his system. Now, a few people got really, really rich. Some, most, were actually driven into poverty. But everybody, including Pharaoh, everybody lost their souls in the process. And his system was supported by the mass production and the exportation of goods. Now, the Egyptian system was one of exploitation. It, it represented Pharaoh's self-indulgence. It represented and revealed his belief of entitlement. And a really interesting thing happened. Because as Pharaoh started to attain more and more and more and more and more, he began to realize that he could distance himself more and more and more and more and more from the people that made it happen. And the farther he could actually distance himself from those people, the more he could actually expect of them. You know, that, it, that's the exact opposite of what we want to have happen to us. We talk about it all the time, how close we actually want to be together, how we want to know one another and be known. But when we collect stuff, we actually create distance without even knowing it. Pharaoh, he didn't become a person of agency. He became a bully. He became domineering. He became demanding, but he wasn't a person of true power. He didn't have power over himself. Even Pharaoh became a slave to the system that he created, and it cost him. 
He had to trade what was best about his humanity that he could connect with others in order to get more and more and more and more and more. Pharaoh actually became the machine. We call it the top dog, but he was actually the top cog. He was a cog, the top, yes, but the top cog in the whole machine in the system of exploitation that he built. And in the end, he exploited himself. Prosperity was promised and he began to believe that, that he would be able to establish a global position of authority and then everyone bought into it and they thought that if they hitched their wagon to Pharaoh's chariot that they would be able to capitalize on this whole thing and it would li- be like their life would take on meeting. And Pharaoh worked towards this end believing that once he had it all even the stars would bow to his commands. It sounds on paper like a great plan. And I think I've heard this plan a time or two, maybe when watching Shark Tank. It sounds like a good plan. But the small print called for sacrifice that would lead to sorrow that was beyond comprehension. Yes, Pharaoh was innovative and creative. He was the picture of success and progress. But the Pharaoh story shows us that even innovation and progress have the ability to cut us off from what is really going on. It has the ability to create distance so that we actually can't do meaningful things. Because when we take a closer peek not just in the book of Holy Scripture, but in the book of Holy Creation, and we look around at Holy Creation, we we can see that the cost of our unhinged and our unlimited consumer habits isn't just personal, it's also global. Let me ask you a question. What do you do with all of your stuff that bores you? What do you do with all that stuff? I've been thinking about that this week. I'll bet you do what I do. You distance yourself from it. Might put it in a a garage or an attic or in a box or maybe a storage unit. Or there are other things that you can do. You distance yourself from it. You label it as worthless. It has no value. Uh, You don't have to consider it from where you don't have to consider from where it came and now where it will go. You know, Pharaoh made goods at an exponential rate and he consumed those goods at an exponential rate and he insisted that he could get what he wanted. He could get what he wanted whenever he wanted it. He could say tomatoes out of season, bananas 89 cents a pound, I want it. And I want it now and I want it cheap. No questions had to be asked. Nobody had to say, where did this come from? Who picked it? Did they get an adequate wage? Do they own the land? Are they victims of organized crime? Can they afford to send their kids to school? Do they get, a va- do they get vacation time? Are they overworked? Do they even get a day of rest, like a Sabbath? Are they children who did this? Do they have health insurance? Pharaoh doesn't care. He doesn't know and he doesn't care. And when we distance ourselves from the process of our stuff, neither do we. It's a high cost. The distance that we create from consuming creates devastating harm. 
And for Christians not to speak about this or, or to acknowledge it, or, or for us as a matter of justice and a, and a people of peace, not to confess our contribution is the very definition of sin. We participate in the world unraveling, and this is an atrocity. May God have mercy on us all. You know, in January, America's main import to China was trash. You know this? It was garbage. The trash that we didn't put into our own landfills were put on trucks. We were distancing ourselves from our stuff. They were sent to the West Coast, then put in containers, set on boats, and then they're shipped off to Asia. Maybe we have a picture of this. And for many years, China was this economy that made, China made an economy out of separating trash that actually came from the West. They would then separate the plastics, they'd recycle it, then make it into cheap junk, put it on boats, and then resell that cheap junk, which we must admit is most of the time cheap junk, back to us. Then we would tire of it after our high, and in the process, it would continue again. And for a while, this was a symbiotic relationship. But now, we just make too much trash. Half of our trash was sent to China, and it became overwhelming. Children played in garbage there sent by the U.S. In January, finally, they said, enough. So 700 million tons of plastic needs to be recycled somewhere, somewhere else. Now, the media thought is, well, let's, okay, let's figure it out. Technology will help us. But, you know, China won't do it, and the cost is too prohibitive to do it here, and the reason is is because only the poorest are willing and desperate enough to do such a horrific job. So we've been looking to send our stuff, our trash, our garbage somewhere else. So we and other rich countries like Canada and Australia started to dump our trash on smaller Asian countries like Indonesia and the Philippines and Malaysia. But we just make too much trash. We continue to distance ourselves. And they have gotten sick of it. And they have said that the Western world is, uh, the Western waste is not welcome. I hear people say that America is a Christian nation. They say it so much that actually other other countries think that it's true. So if it's true, Christians are the worst. And I would argue that we have fully given ourselves over to a system of exploitation, self-indulgence, and entitlement. And when we do this, we are actually distancing ourselves. We're creating layers from our neighbors. We're creating layers from our world. We're creating layers from our God. You know, writers of the New Testament and the early church and the saints throughout church history have always warned against this. The desert, the desert fathers called this greed and they said it was one of the seven deadliest sins. But they all, had a solution to the problem that they could see was on the horizon. And they said it was this, simplicity. Simplicity. You know, Jesus' invitation to follow him always required people to leave something behind. He seemed rough on people uh, when they wanted to make a way to keep their possessions or their plans and they tried to find a way to follow him while still walking on a wider path. I think Jesus may have been on to something. I think he might have understood that a life of consuming, 
of collecting stuff created layers of distance that prevent us from from actually connecting in a richer, deeper, more meaningful way. So Paul, this follower of Jesus, writes this brilliant piece that we had today. And it's a wonderful piece of peace. And there is more here. I used to hear it like this. You need to be content. And, and I think there is more here than just simplicity as contentment. For Jesus and for Paul and for the early Christian fathers and mothers, a life of simplicity wasn't just about contentment. Do you know what it was? Simplicity was about resistance. And resistance is actually about real empowerment. And once you're practicing simplicity, you're able, with God's help, to actually take hold of your own life and you're actually able to be in control of the decisions that you, you are able to make. And when you practice simplicity, you're actually able to become the real you that was intended to be. And you know what I think? That's what the world needs most. They need the real version of the real you. They need the real version of the real me. And while we think that our stuff represents power, actually, that's the opposite. We're trapped in our stuff. We're drowning in it. But Jesus and Paul figured out that, <clears throat> that true power is displayed when a community resists embracing Pharaoh's narrative. Jesus, when he invited people into a life of discipleship, he, he didn't just ask them to leave something. He gave them something. He actually gave them life that empowered them. He said, now you're filled, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is power. You don't have to live this way any longer. Following Jesus in his way and in his practices for creation care, for neighborliness, is actually God-given power to resist participating in the destruction of the earth. And it is actually for each one of our good. Paul said in another letter, God's power is made perfect in the things that I'm unable to do on my own. You know, Paul, when he gives us this text, he has a vision. And the vision is that we would experience peace. It's what theologians call an eschatological hope. It's a hope that is rooted in the resurrected Jesus. And it's one that we all get to participate in together. And he said to his friends in this letter, you don't have to be anxious anymore. Don't worry about the rat race because the Lord is coming soon. That is, if you don't know it, a wonderful promise. In 2015, we were looking towards the future with eschatological hope. We decided, a group of us decided to put away the nonsense. And like Paul said, we decided, we made a conscious decision. We were going to pursue things that were right, true, excellent, and praiseworthy. Some people sold their stuff to make that happen. Some people sold their homes to make that, make that happen. Some people just arranged everything, rearranged everything in their lives to make that happen. We put our minds on it. We wanted to be a part of things that were good and true and praiseworthy. And we were looking for a space to start a church. And we, would, we knew that it would either be borrowed space or it would be small space. And we thought long and hard about this. And as there in 2015, we looked into the future and we did so with hope, we found 
this, this building. Now, some people thought we bought this building because it was what we could afford. And that's actually true. <laughs> some people thought we bought this, beauty, uh, this building because it was beautiful. And, and that's true as well. And some people thought we bought this building because it was Midtown. True. And some thought we bought it because it told a story. Yes, true. And some thought we did it because it's been a place that has been an example of ministry to the poor. True. All true. But do you know what the real, the main reason I should say? Do you know what the main reason is that we bought this building? It's size. We chose small. It's simple. And we chose this building because we loved it. And we knew it would force us to practice the Christian virtue of simplicity. It would keep us rooted. 7,500 square feet. People would always say to us, you know, your building is going to be too small. And we'd say, yes, we know. We, we, wanted, we wanted to limit the degrees of separation. The lights are on, friends. We want to know our neighbors. We want to see the faces of the people who sit next to us and hear their voice of the person, uh, hear the voice of the person who is singing next to us in worship. We did not buy a huge place just to fill it up with a bunch of junk. And I don't know if you know this, but churches all over America are storehouses for your junk because you don't know what to do with it, so you want the tax write-off, you call the church. People think, I don't need this couch anymore, I'll give it to the youth group. We don't even have a youth group yet. Keep your couches. <laughs> Most churches actually... Long for the Pharaoh project, and this sounds a little harsh, but most take up enormous space. They build massive buildings. They have huge parking lots so that families of four can drive all four of the cars they own. They use tons and tons of electricity, and they're not appreciated by the neighbors around them because they don't have to pay taxes. We have, in, with intention, we have we have, we have practiced, we are practicing, even by our being together here in this space, we are practicing resisting this system. We, friends, have built in simplicity. We've really taken a minimalist philosophy with our building because we want this, this uh, virtue of simplicity to bleed into our own lives. This is a resource to be stewarded, not a resource to be exploited. And then someday when we're sick of it or when it's too small or, or when we feel like it doesn't have all the amenities that we like, we just throw it away because it's worthless. No, no, no. This is sacred space. It's a gift. And Paul says, be joyful always because the Lord is coming soon. And your present hope the hope that you have one day will turn into a future full of God's promises. And the Jewish people called this shalom. So you and I are invited to dialogue between these two books. Uh, when you're, you're invited to immerse yourself in the, in the, the uh, biblical story. But you're also invited to immerse yourself in the creation story. So when you're making purchases or, or driving or, or planting a garden or choosing what food you're going to eat... When you're doing that, I want you to ask some questions. Will this be used to usher will this be used to usher in God's harmony? Does 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 what I'm doing now create shalom? 
does this give me or others a sense of awe and reverence and for creation? Does it, does it create humility? That I am part of something that God has designed and God has said that I am enough. Or does it create arrogance and independence from God where I say to myself, I am never enough. And what I do, does it leave me with a sense of feeling connected? Does it, does it agree with the harmony and living of the elements that are around me? These are super good Christian questions to ask. And the invitation to practice simplicity is one that leads us to deeper satisfaction. And Paul says, I invite you to pray about these things. Do not be anxious about them, but pray about them so that you might have joy and a sense of contentment and a realization and an acknowledgement that, hey, I'm okay. And God loves me just the way I am. I would argue, friends, that choosing simplicity is actually one of the ways in which we connect with this God and with his creation and with one another. And the only appropriate thing to do when we hear these good words is to say, thank you. Each week we come to a table. We call it the Lord's table. Some of you have heard that because it's Jesus's table. Sometimes we call it communion because it's where the community gathers. But don't miss this part. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist. And the Eucharist, and the Eucharist means this. The Eucharist means simply thank you. So I like that name. So I'm going to invite you to the Eucharist so that you can say thank you to this God. That's what you're doing. So I want to invite you to the Eucharist as a way to engage in the conversation that we're having together to, to ask these questions. Maybe you need to think about your own life. Maybe you need to check your own heart. Maybe there are things that you need to think about. Have I bought into a, a narrative that is not real? Am I, do I feel that I'm not enough? Am I going to lean into the promises of God that I actually am and that he has given me agency and power to live in his way? Maybe you want to get in on this journey with some of us and discover how we might participate in a, in a way of radical hospitality as he has been good to us. So I want to remind you before you come that in his generosity, Jesus on the night before he was betrayed, by those he came to save, at dinner took the bread which, was raised, which grew from the ground, was made of the elements, the things that grew from the ground, and he gave thanks and then he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. It is enough for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, this cup represents the new promise, the new covenant that I am for you and that you are enough and you are enough with me. It comes from the elements. It is made from the elements that grow out of the ground. It represents the new covenant that comes in my blood that has been poured out for you. And so whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. At our church, we practice open table. And we want to make sure that there are no barriers. So our bread is gluten-free. Our wine is non-alcoholic. I invite you to exit the, the left side of your row there. Come down our aisle. And uh, I invite you to do so with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which fr comes from God. We do not take communion here. 
we receive it because it is a gift, as all things from God are. So come approach one of these uh, servers, listen to what they have to say. Then when you're ready, you may dip the bread into the cup and eat it. And all the way along, friends, I invite you to be thankful. If for any reason you can't come out down our aisle, but you need some assistance, Justin would love to come and bring the elements to you. So friends, this is a table of grace. It is the Lord's table. It is where community happens, and it is where we get to say thank you. So I invite you to come to this table.